It's been a celebratory week in the Walby family. We have been tremendously blessed, in particular with the arrival of our new son. It's been a week of festivities. My parents came in from New York. My in-laws came in from Canada. We had a Lots of celebrations over Shabbos. Even before Shabbos, as I challenged myself last week on the podcast, I managed to send out a newsletter on Friday. Most of it, 95% of it was actually written on Friday. It was more than 3,500 words. It was a monster article, but I managed to pull it off. And now we know. Now we all know. I know you know that any week that I fail to produce a new newsletter, you cannot attribute that to overwhelming busyness. Because this was such a busy week, such a packed week that I was so busy, but I nevertheless managed to write and publish a newsletter. I was working like many hours on Friday on it. I didn't even edit it. I just I just wrote it. And sent it. I hope it was not too riddled with errors and typos. But we did that on Friday. And then Friday night we had a very celebratory Shalom Zachar party at our home. And I gave a big speech. Actually, I spoke twice Friday night. And if you want to hear what I said, you're going to have to listen to my other podcast on my other show, This Jewish Life, which I recommend that you listen to and you subscribe anyhow. But the most recent episode was what I spoke about on Friday night. And then I spoke on Shabbos Day. And then on Monday, so today's Wednesday. So two days ago, we had the bris and we named our son David, which is, of course, the Hebrew for David. So David Walby. And we're very excited with him and he's doing wonderful. And what I want to share with you today is some of the other things that I spoke about during this past week of celebration. So I want to give you two segments in this Parsha podcast episode. Number one, what I said on Shabbos. And number two, what I said at the bris, or what, more precisely, I tried to say at the bris. You know, we always like to make our celebrations here in the Torch Center. As uh, part of the team here, I, I get free access. Free access to the hall at the Torch Center. But... There's a little bit of a problem here in the Torch Center, and that is that there's no heating. For whatever reason, when this was built, they're like, it's Houston. You don't need heating. It's just 90 plus degrees most of the year. Air conditioning is fine. But Monday, there's this big Arctic blast and was big time below freezing. We had like in the teens. And with the windshield, it was like five degrees. So... I wasn't going to have the baby subjected to coming, having a bris over here, or the or the uh, guests. So we did it at the shul, and that was wonderful. But the problem is, is that in the shul, they have a cavernous social hall, and it has some of the worst acoustics of any room I've ever spoken in. No, let me, let me rephrase that. It is the worst. So no matter what you do, there's no way for other people to hear you. Plus, on Monday, there was no school. 
So there were armies of children racing through the room, and I tried futilely to speak just because I was determined to do so. But people are chatting, and I'm, I'm just getting up there and belting it out, and whether people listen or not, that's fine. I know that now I'm at the Torch Center, and it's it's still cold, and I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> if you would see me now, I'm wearing a jacket, plus a little coat, plus a scarf. It's like 59 degrees inside here. It's kind of cold. What can we say? You know, most of the year, we have the opposite problem. It's cold. It's okay. But I'm going to share with you what I said, or what I attempted to say on Monday at the Breast. And I'll tell you, yesterday, Tuesday, was also very cold. And I know the people that come from the Northeast, certainly the Canadians, they laugh at us. You know, H-I-S-D, so that's the public schools here in Houston, they canceled school. Why? Not because there's like a blizzard or there's a foot and a half of, of snow. No, it's just because it was cold and some of the overpasses may have frozen and therefore we don't, we don't salt, we don't salt the roads here. And therefore it's a little bit dangerous to drive and the, the teachers have a good reason to stay home. So they canceled a lot of the schools and they sent out an email on Monday night that we have a lot of teachers that cannot show up tomorrow. This is our school. So we may have to cancel, but if the parent body wants to volunteer to come in as, as teachers, then maybe we could still have school and y'all just, you know, you'll, you'll pitch in. They ask for parental volunteers. So even though it's the day after the bris and it's kind of crazy and chaotic at home, I, I wrote back an email, happy to help, whatever I could do. So yesterday, Tuesday, I did 40 minutes with the fifth grade boys, and that was amazing. And then I did an hour with the fourth grade boys. That was also a ton of fun. But I will tell you my conclusion. These teachers, they are underpaid. I don't know what they get paid, but it's not enough. Even though I had a great time, I have to say, with the fifth grade boys, I I brought a, a huge box of paper clips. And I gave everyone a paperclip. And I said, we're going to ask trivia questions from the Torah. And every time you get a correct answer, you get another paperclip. And the person with the longest paperclip chain, they're the winner. So I went around the room and asked me questions from Genesis. You know, just basic trivia question. You know, who was Adam's third son, of course, it's Seth. And then, and then uh, you know, what did what did God create on day f- on day four on on Wednesday, and so on. I asked like uh, I don't know, hundred some odd questions, and then I gave out lollipops with the fifth grade boys, and then I said, okay, I'm done. Who I was all sweaty, and I went home, and I got a call on the way home, and we don't have anyone to teach the fourth grade boys. We need some cover for the fourth grade boys. So I was at a paperclip. So I said, I'm coming back. I turned around, went back to the school. And again, I, uh, you know, they said, we have a uh, prepared lesson plans. I said, no lesson plans for me. We're just going to wing it. So I said, we're going to do a trivia game. And uh, all the kids were sitting nicely in their seat. We're going to do a trivia game. And the way it works is that uh, the, the boy all the way at one edge of the room, you get to decide the subject of the trivia question. And then I asked all the kids a question on that subject. So, what one kid selected animals, and then one did, you know, 
the story of Noah, and then the book of Genesis, uh, Bracious. And one wanted to hear questions on Birkas Hamazan, on the grace after the meal. And then there was this one kid, he says, I want questions on politics. These are, these are fourth graders, mind you. Politics. Okay, that got my attention. He's like, I'm an expert on U.S. presidents. Oh, wow. I'm also an expert on U.S. presidents. Let's go. I said, I'm going to ask you a really tough question. And again, this is a fourth grader. So I say, which U.S. presidents won a Nobel Peace Prize? Now, I think if you would ask the average American voter, I don't know, would 5% get the correct answer? 10%? This kid belts it out. Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Jimmy Carter, and Barack Obama. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Boom, he just responded. So then I say, okay, let's up the ante. Who were the, the four presidents that were assassinated? So, of course, everyone knows Lincoln and Kennedy. But fewer people know that it was also James Garfield and William McKinley. So he belts it out. These four presidents, these four presidents were assassinated. And then he names... The assassins. So we all know uh, um, Lee Harvey Oswald, who allegedly killed Kennedy, and James, what was his name? James Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln. But who killed Garfield? And who killed McKinley? He was killed by by an anarchist, an anarchist in Buffalo. But he just belted it out. And I said, okay, which president was born in Texas? And then he starts peppering me with questions. Which presidents were five-star generals? Which I knew the answer. And then he's like, again, this is a fifth grader here grilling me. Which president was also secretary of commerce? Which I didn't know. And then he said the answer. I'm like, oh, I should have gotten that. It was Herbert Hoover. This savant. This savant. He knew all the answers. Then one kid wanted to have basketball questions and one soccer questions. It was a lot of fun. And then last night... The uh, the executive director of the school, he knocked on my door with a very nice card and it said, thanks to you. There were 500 students who were able to study Torah today. And then I told him, I said, listen, if there's ever a time that my volunteering will keep the doors open, I'm in. I'll cancel everything, everything. If we have a cold day, it's so cold. How can you possibly have school? I'm in. Let's go. Let's not cancel it. It's too important. Of course, all of y'all in the Northeast are just laughing at us. It's cold and, you know, there may be ice so you cancel school. Anyhow, they didn't cancel school on Tuesday. And thank God we were able to contribute a little bit towards that. But that's not the subject of today's podcast. What I want to share with you is what I spoke about on Shabbos morning. That will be segment number one. And what I spoke about on Monday morning, or I attempted to speak about during the bris on Monday morning. And again, I will advise you what I spoke about on Friday night. It's already been recorded and released on my other podcast, or one of my other podcasts called This Jewish Life. The title, I think, of the episode was Celebrating a New Walby Baby. I highly recommend subscribing to that show, This Jewish Life. It is very I think interesting. We go through all sorts of fun subjects, and that one also was, in my opinion, it was a very interesting presentation. Okay, let's begin. So the first segment is going to be what I spoke about on Shabbos morning. Now, I will warn you, this is not really pertinent to our Parsha. It's truthfully about last week's Parsha, Parsha's Va'era, 
It's, I guess, related because the storyline is a continuous storyline, but it's such a wonderful idea, such a powerful idea, such an important and valuable and instructive idea that it's important to share, even though it's not technically our Parsha. And then I'll, I'll share as well what I tried to speak about on the morning of the bris. So we're in the story of the Exodus. Jewish people are in Egypt. They spent hundreds of years enslaved in Egypt, and now it's time to go. And the Almighty nominates Moshe and Moshe and Aaron, really, to go lead the effort to be at the vanguard, to spearhead the effort of the Exodus. And they go to Pharaoh, and it initially founders. He makes the conditions of the Jewish slaves worse. He exacerbates the servitude. And the people complain and Moshe complains, and then the process of redemption actually begins. And it's interesting, if you examine the storyline, there are a lot of miracles, signs, wonders that Moshe and Aaron do. Of course, there are the ten plagues. Ten plagues that the Almighty foisted upon the Egyptians. And the triggers of all these plagues were typically Moshe and Aaron with the staff. And of course, not to spoil things, but in Etch's Parsha, we're going to have the showdown, the standoff at the sea. And once again, there will be a miracle that will be done, that will be initiated by this staff. But before Moshe goes to Pharaoh, he asks for some signs. And God gives him some signs. He says, take the staff in your hand, and drop it on the ground. And it turns into a serpent. And Moshe is terrified, and God tells him, grab the the tail of the serpent, and it turns once again into a staff. And then he tells him, stick your hand in your in your garment, in your in your uh, in your clothing. And he sticks it in and comes out and it's white like snow. And then he sticks it back in and once again it returns to being flesh colored. And then he tells him, take some water, spill it on the ground, it turns into blood. These are some signs in Moshe's arsenal. Now, once they go and they begin doing these miracles, they do some miracles before Pharaoh, and then they begin to do the ten plagues. So we had seven in last week's parsha, parsha's Vaera, and the final three in this week's parsha, the one of the of the locust and the darkness, and of course the death of the firstborn. But if you'll read the first three of the templates, they are initiated by Aaron. Aaron strikes the water. Aaron strikes the water. Aaron strikes the ground. And we've talked about this many times in the past. That Moshe is not supposed to strike the ground or the water. Moshe, as a baby, was protected by the water. He was floating on top of the water, and therefore he must have appreciation for the water. He must have eternal gratitude for the water. It's not appropriate for him to strike the water. Just as when there's a well that you've drunk water from, you don't throw a stone into it. If someone needs to throw a stone, let it be someone else, not you. Similarly, when Moshe struck the Egyptian, he buried him in the sand, and therefore the earth, the dirt of Egypt, it did him a solid. And therefore, if you need to strike the land, the earth, the terra firma of Egypt, it should be done by Aaron. Therefore, the first three of the ten plagues were perpetrated, were initiated by Aaron. But here's the question. 
Before the templates begin, chapter 7 of Exodus, Moshe and Aaron go back to Pharaoh. And they do some miracles to Pharaoh. And the verse tells us, chapter 7, verse 10, Aaron took his staff and he threw it on the ground. And it turned into a serpent. So the same miracle that happened when, when Moshe was asking for a sign, he threw his staff on the ground, it turned into a serpent. Now Aaron is doing this in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is not impressed. And he says, you come to Egypt. Egypt is the land of sorcery. Everyone could do this. This is child's play. It's a rookie move. All of Pharaoh's necromancers, soothsayers, gurus, they take their staffs and they throw it on the ground. And lo and behold, their staffs turn into a serpent as well. We're not so impressed. We could all do this sort of trickery. But then the verse tells us that actually once their staffs returned from being serpents into being staffs, the staff of Aaron actually swallowed their staffs. That, of course, differentiated between the, the miracles, the legitimate, divinely ordained miracles of Moshe and Aaron versus the sleight of hand, the sorcery, the trickery of the sorcerers of Pharaoh. But here's the question. Why couldn't Moshe do this miracle? I get it. The first three of the templates, striking the water and turning it into blood, striking the water to bring out the frog, striking the earth to turn it into lice. Those three, Moshe could not have done it because Moshe had to have appreciation, gratitude towards the water and the earth, respectively, because they did him some favors. I get that. But why couldn't Moshe do this miracle to impress upon Pharaoh and his people, to impress, to, to, to show his credibility? Why couldn't he take the staff and throw it on the ground? That's an interesting question. Moshe, after all, did this already once, right? When Moshe asked God, in chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, of Exodus, what sign should I show them? God says, take the staff. What's in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it on the ground. turns into a serpent. So obviously, Moshe, there's nothing that was preventing Moshe from being the one to do this miracle. So why did once, in chapter 7, once it was time to do it in front of Pharaoh, why did Aaron have to do it? Why not Moshe? The, the rule is, is that Moshe does this. Moshe is the leader. Aaron is Moshe's aide. He's his assistant. He's his lieutenant. He's the one who's going to translate what Moshe is saying. He's going to be the representative of Moshe. But Moshe is the one who is the leader of this movement of the Exodus. So why didn't Moshe throw the staff on the ground? That's a question that's asked by one of the ancient commentaries. And the question is interesting, but the answer, it's very powerful. The answer is that it's not the way, meaning that this is a departure of the way things ought to be. It's not the way 
for one miracle to be done by one person? Twice. Earlier, when Moshe was by the burning bush, he took the staff and threw it onto the ground and it became into a serpent. And by the way, I misspoke. That was not in chapter 3. That was in the beginning of chapter 4 of Exodus. This miracle of taking a staff, taking a stick, and throwing it onto the ground and having it transform into a serpent, Moshe did this already once. And the way miracles work is that if you do a miracle, you're given a certain divine capacity to do something which is supernatural. You're given that once. And once you do it, your capacity to summon that same divine supernatural behavior, your capacity has been exhausted. So Moshe was allocated this miracle once. In chapter 4, verse 3 of Exodus, Moshe took a staff and threw it on the ground and it became into a snake. It turned into a serpent. So the miracle of taking a staff and throwing it on the ground and having it transform into a serpent, that miracle Moshe did. And he was allotted one opportunity. Now it's to do this before Pharaoh? It cannot be that Moshe does it. Now it must be Aaron. And the commentaries cite some precedents for this. In the book of Kings, so this is Kings 2, chapter 4, it tells the story of Elisha, Elisha the prophet. He is one of the prophets who was able to revive the dead. But the verse tells us that he had an assistant. His name was Gehazi. And he told his assistant, take my staff and go revive, revive the dead. There was the, the, the son of the Shunammite woman and he wanted to revive this baby. Baby died. And you can read the story yourself. It's a very interesting story. And Elisha wanted to revive this baby. So he appointed his, his attendant, his aide, Gehazi, take this staff, go place it upon the face of the dead boy, and the boy will come back alive. And the verse tells us that he went and nothing happened. So Elisha himself had to come and revive the boy. And the commentaries tell us, what's the bad story here? This student, this disciple of Elisha, Gehazi, he was told, like, <laughs> Elisha, the prophet, tells you, here's a staff, go place it upon the, the head of the dead baby. This staff will bring her back alive. So he's running to this location with this staff, and this is a pretty nature-suspending miracle, don't you think? To take someone who's dead and turn them back alive, that's that's resurrection. That's the handiwork of God. Can you imagine? At least the prophet gives you a staff and says, place this upon the head of the baby and they'll come back alive? Imagine what was going through Gehazi's head as he's rushing towards this house where the baby is lying. Now, on the way, he wanted to test it. He wanted to test it. 
is this staff, is it really so powerful? You place it upon the dead and the dead come back alive? Is that true? How wondrous! On the way, he sees a dead dog. And he says, you know what, let's test it. Let's test the staff on the dog. And he places the staff on the dog. And what do you know? The animal comes back alive. So now he's really convinced that this staff has all this power. He runs to the house of the Shunammite woman, places the staff upon the head of the baby. And the baby does not stir. He remains lifeless. And the reason why is because there was one miracle that was allocated. And Gehazi deployed this miracle on the dog. And therefore, he used up the miracle. It's vitality, it's it's possibility, it's ability to change, to effectuate something supernatural and miraculous has been exhausted. And now you come to the baby and your staff has been vacated of all its miraculous power. This is what happened over here. Moshe was allocated one miracle. One miracle to take a staff and throw it on the ground. And because he asked out for a sign by the burning bush, God said, okay, here's a sign. He throws it on the ground, turns it to a serpent. He has exhausted, the commentaries tell us, he has exhausted his ability to summon this miracle. And therefore, when it's time to impress Pharaoh, Aaron has to do it. This is fascinating because I think there's a a powerful idea here. We often think that we have endless opportunities. And the truth is, we know that the opportunities really are endless. And the sky's the limit. And there really is no cap to how great we can become. The Rambam famously tells us, and we love to repeat this here on the Parsha podcast, every single human, he doesn't say Jew, he says human, can become as great as Moshe. If a person utilizes all their opportunities and maximizes all their potential, even if their potential is not, of course, in absolute terms like that of Moshe, but they did whatever they could have done, and therefore they did 100%. You do 100% of your ability. You are like Moshe on one dimension, on the relative dimension, the dimension of how much of your potential did you actualize. So really, there is no limits on our potential. But when we are given opportunities, we're given gifts from the Almighty. We're given divine vitality. We're given the opportunity to utilize our strengths. Those, we have to be very careful how we channel them. Gehazi, he placed the staff on the baby's face, but it's too late. He already utilized the resurrective capacities of the staff on the dead dog. Now he no longer has the ability to reanimate the baby. There's an incredible verse in chapter 21 of Genesis. This is after 
Abraham banished, much to his disappointment, much to his chagrin, as they say, he banished Ishmael. The verse says, chapter 21, verse 20, it's an, it's an amazing verse. And God was with the lad. And he grew up and he dwelled in the desert and he became an archer. Ishmael was banished from his father, Abraham's home, and he had to go to Egypt. And of course, there's a very dramatic story what happened along the way. We know, of course, we read that on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. But once things are settled, he's in Egypt, he's living in the desert. The verse says, God was with the lad. This is an unbelievable thing. The Torah is telling us that God Almighty was with Ishmael. Ishmael had an enormous bounty of divine vitality and aid. The Torah says that God was with him. Think about what that means. Ishmael could have done whatever he wanted and his efforts would have been boosted, would have been amplified by the divine aid that he had. As the verse testifies, God was with him. But what did he do with that opportunity? How did he deploy this tremendous gift? He became an archer. He became an expert marksman. And I guarantee you that Ishmael was a very superb sharpshooter. He was a consummate marksman. After all, God was with him. But if you think about it, this is a tremendous mistake. Ishmael could have done anything. And whatever he would have done, he would have succeeded in. And he chose to deploy this tremendous gift from the Almighty for something which is relatively trivial, like archery. It's relatively inconsequential. Ishmael had the ability to change the entire world. And he had an immense gift from Hashem to do whatever he wanted to do. God was with him. God showered tremendous divine grace upon Ishmael and his mistake. And the shame of Ishmael was that he chose to exercise it in a foolish manner and just becoming just the best marksman in the Middle East. I think this is a a very valuable lesson for us. All of us have gifts from the Almighty. And God's with us to one extent or another. But we have to choose which area we want to deploy those gifts, which games, so to speak, we want to play. I have a friend, and I'll try to, I'll try to conceal any details so you don't know who I'm talking about, because this is, I think, a little bit of a criticism. I love him, by the way, so this is nothing personal. This friend of mine, he's a brilliant engineer, just an absolute brilliant engineer. He And he has the unique blend of the theoretical brilliance plus the practical skills to be able to implement his ideas computer science and machine learning 
and complex algorithms. And he's also an entrepreneur. So that's like a magical combo, right? But I have a little criticism of him based upon this. Because the application that he choo- he, that he chose, it's the most trivial, I couldn't think of anything more trivial of an application for this incredible still set. Like he could have tried to solve some of the most difficult problems in the world. And he used all his genius and mastery and incredible intellectual and technical gifts in a very trivial application. And that's maybe the criticism over here. You use something and you direct it in one area. You don't know what other areas now, what other doors are closed because you chose to implement it in this area, not elsewhere. And truthfully, this is a lesson that really could be applied in many different areas of life. You think about the areas that people use their intelligence for. So I know people who spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about the betting odds and the spreads and fantasy football or people playing armchair political pundits and thinking about all the political machinations, armchair diplomats, armchair Fed Reserve chair, or worse, you know, who's going to get kicked off the island? People are using their gifts and they're not lazy. They're not just ignoring them, allowing them to atrophy, which is one problem. Some people, they don't even use, they don't even recognize that they have gifts and they just don't do anything about it. That's, of course, a tragedy. But someone who does use it, it's important to use it for the most productive use that's possible. Don't break your head. Don't marshal all your intelligence for something which is ultimately trivial. This is why we try to direct all of our attention to Torah study, because that's the most powerful, consequential, and existentially consequential use of our intelligence. People who are going to dedicate time towards something, people who are going to invest in something, use good goals. Invest in your family. Invest in your relationships. Invest in things that will endure forever. Invest in your soul. I was talking to the girls that I teach twice a week. Most of, most of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about here. But there's this new phenomenon. It's all the rage. The Stanley Cup. Now, not the cup of Lord Stanley, not the hockey Stanley Cup. There's this thermos. It's a cup. It's a insulated cup. But it's like all the rage. You have to have a Stanley Cup. And people are waiting now hours and hours and hours online. It used to be that they would wait for the new iPhone. And if you're old enough to remember, like when Windows 95 comes out, everyone was waiting, 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 waiting for the new Windows. But now people are waiting for the new Stanley Cup, which again, it's a thermos, okay? It's apparently a really, 
really good thermos. If you're waiting in line, wait for something which is more valuable. If you're using your time, if you're investing your energy, try to find the most productive goal. You don't have unlimited shots on goal. You have a finite amount of potential. You have a finite amount of skills and opportunities and gifts from on high. Yes, if you utilize them, really it's limitless what you can become. You can become a straight motion on one dimension, one level. But if you misdirect them, if you direct you a portion, you appropriate your intelligence and your gifts and your abilities and your resources and your time in one area, you have to know that that necessarily includes a trade-off because there are other areas. Areas that you may much more prefer direct your intelligence and your abilities and your resources that now you are precluded from using what you already exhausted in those areas. And Dechaz, if you ask them, okay, you could revive the dog or the baby. Which one do you prefer? Of course, he would choose the baby. But he made a mistake. He deployed it in that area, in the area of the dog. And he didn't realize that he's making a choice that will prevent them from using it again in the future. I think it's a very valuable lesson, which is broadly applicable. Of course, it's very applicable for a new baby because the baby's, you know, 100% potential, right? And life really is about making this choice. What am I going to utilize from all the gifts that the Almighty gives me? In what area, in what realm, in what arena am I going to play? What games am I going to play? Ishmael was was blessed. There's no one else regarding whom the Torah says God was with them. Think about what that means. He could have done whatever he wanted. And he would have excelled at it. If he said, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to bring the knowledge of God in the world. I'm going to actualize what my father Abraham started. God was with him. He would have succeeded. He chose to be an archer. And he was an excellent expert marksman. Yes. But what does he have for that now? Okay, that's segment number one, what I spoke about Shabbos morning. And now I want to share with you segment number two, what I tried to speak about. Well, I did, but no one really heard it during the bris on Monday. This is from this week's parasha. It's a subject that we've touched upon in the past, but it relates to the parasha and to the bris, to the circumcision. So it was obviously the right thing to speak about at the occasion of the bris. In our parasha, it talks about the Carbon Pesach, the Paschal offering. The Jewish people, before they leave Egypt, they must bring a sacrifice, the Paschal offering. They have to take a sheep and they have to guard it for four days. They take it on the 10th of the month and they bind it to their bed and they watch it. They guard it to make sure it does not get any blemishes and then on day 14, they slaughter it and they take the blood and they put it on their doorposts and they roast it and then they eat it at night. Now Rashi tells us chapter 12, verse 6, that this requirement to guard, to observe, to watch the animal for four days 
that is applicable only in Egypt, only in the first pastoral offering that was done in Egypt. But every subsequent pastoral offering, once they left Egypt, there was no requirement to watch the guard to observe the animal for four days before it is slaughtered. And the question is why? We know that there's a mitzvah to do a pastoral offering every Pesach. Now, today we don't have a temple, so we cannot do an offering. But I always tell people, if you hear the news, if you read about it on the internet, you see it on the front page of the world's newspapers, the Messiah has come. The very first thing that you do is you book a flight to Israel for Pesach. Because everyone's going to be scrambling for, you know, what does this mean? What are the lessons? What what am I supposed to do? And not many people are thinking about the fact that, okay, now I must go to Israel, to the temple for Pesach to bring a pastoral offering. Most people don't think about it on those terms, and therefore you'll get in before the prices skyrocket. That's my advice. So we, we, we have not brought a pastoral offering in many years. Please God, hopefully this year, we hope. Messiah comes, we build a temple, and we'll all meet in Jerusalem. That's not a bad place. Maybe we'll have a a Parsha podcast get-together in Jerusalem. We meet in Jerusalem, and we bring a pastoral offering. But there's no requirement in any pastoral offering after the Exodus, after we left Egypt, there's no requirement to take the animal for four days or tie it to your bed or watch it, observe it, guard it in any way. And the question is why? Why is there this unique requirement in Egypt if we are not required to do it post-Egypt? So Rashi cites an incredible comment here in the Midrash. It's really based upon a verse in Ezekiel chapter 16. The verse tells us that the time of the Exodus, the apportioned time of the Exodus, had arrived. God promised Abraham that they will be enslaved for hundreds of years, and then they will leave, and they'll leave with great wealth, and the nation that enslaved them will be judged. That's chapter 15 of Genesis that is the covenant of the parts. And now's the time. God made a promise. God made an oath, and he is going to keep his promise, his oath. But there was a problem. The nation was not worthy. They were not deserving of the Exodus. They were not deserving of this dramatic and miraculous redemption. In the words of Rashi, they had no mitzvos in their hands. They were not engaged in mitzvos in order to merit the redemption. So it's the time to redeem, but there is a problem because they're not worthy. The only way they can be redeemed is if they are engaged with mitzvos and they have no mitzvos. And again, it continues with the verse in Ezekiel. They were like naked people, spiritually naked. They were bereft of mitzvos. And therefore, God gave them two mitzvos. The mitzvah of the pastoral offering and the mitzvah of the circumcision. The night before the Exodus, The Jewish people had blood on their doorposts to prevent any attacking angels from infiltrating. 
And that blood came from the Paschal offering that they slaughtered that day. But there was, there was other blood. And that's the blood of the circumcision. The Jewish people in Egypt did not circumcise, with the exception of the tribe of Levi. And on the night of the Exodus, so it's the day before a big trip, you've been in, in Egypt for a long time, and now it's time to leave. Imagine what a logistical nightmare that is. You know, just we, we were trying to get all of our children to go to the bris on Monday. You know, it's like to get everyone dressed, and everyone's complained, I don't have my shoes, and I don't like my clothing, I'm too tired. Imagine what it's like getting a nation of millions of people out of Egypt when they spent hundreds of years there. And think about what it requires. You know, you're heading out on foot. And everyone circumcises that night. That's not what you want to do before a big trip, right? You're going on a marathon. You don't circumcise yourself the night before. Or maybe you do. How would I know? But I imagine it's not the... It's not the thing that the trainers would advise. This is the best way to prepare. No, they would not. They would say, they would say you know, get your electrolytes, make sure you get some sleep. They would advise you to behave in a very different way than to circumcise yourself. But the Jewish people circumcised themselves that night. Therefore, they have two mitzvahs, two merits. The merit of the blood of the pastoral offering and the merit of the blood of the circumcision. And that is what enabled them to be redeemed. An amazing comment in chapter 12, verse 6 of our Parsha. Our Parsha tells the story of the redemption, of the Exodus. And there's a rule, there's a protocol. Redemption can only come amidst occupation with mitzvahs. It's the right time for them to be redeemed. This is the time that God promised Abraham. It's the right time, but they're not worthy because they're not occupied with mitzvahs. And therefore, God gave them some extra mitzvahs. Yes, in the future, future pastoral offerings, there is no requirement to guard it for four days or to splatter the blood on the doorpost and the lintels. But there was a need for some extra mitzvahs. And therefore, God gave them the two mitzvahs, the blood of the pastoral offering and the blood of the circumcision. That is the comment in Rashi. And here's the question. The premise of Rashi is that there was a need to give the Jewish people mitzvahs to occupy themselves with. They were naked. They were bereft of mitzvahs. Well, okay, give the mitzvahs. Well, which mitzvahs? It could have been any mitzvahs you imagine. Why does it choose specifically the pastoral offering? The blood of the pastoral offering they're going to put on the doorposts and lintels and the blood of the circumcision. Can't be that it was just, you know, random. Let, let's pick, let's spin the wheel. Let's find out which one of the 613 mitzvahs we're going to do. Oh, it's, um, Shotness. Oh, it's uh, f- sending away the mother bird before you take away the, the baby bird. Oh, it's tefillin, mezuzah, tzitzis. That's not how it worked. Obviously, it was targeted. It had to be these mitzvahs specifically. And the question is why? Why are these two mitzvahs in particular the ones that enabled the redemption? 
So there are a variety of answers to this. And again, I will remind you, we did speak about this in previous years on the podcast, but not, I didn't speak I didn't, I didn't of the whole podcast. Again, I'm streaming top of my lungs here in this cavernous room and no one's hearing me, but it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care. I'm speaking anyhow. I'm used to speaking when no one's listening. I'm in the room now. There's no one here in the room. I just mean the microphone, right? I know that you're probably listening on your end, but I guess I'm accustomed to speaking without any live feedback. So I quoted my grandfather, blessed memory. And my grandfather cited a teaching in the Talmud, the book of Menachos on page 43b. And I thought it was particularly fitting to share this teaching in the Talmud because it cites David. And of course, we named our son David, David, of course, the Hebrew for David. And I thought it was, it was fitting to cite this resolution to this question on this parsha from the Talmud that cites David. And the Talmud tells us like this, cherished is Israel. The Jewish people are fortunate. We're cherished. Why? Because the Almighty surrounds us with mitzvahs. He encircles us with mitzvahs. He envelops us with mitzvahs. We have tefillin on our head. We have tefillin on our arm. We have tzitzis on our garments. And we have a mezuzah on our doorposts. If you look at the Jewish environment, there's mitzvahs everywhere. On your arm, on your head, on your garments, on your door. And regarding this, King David, he cited the verse in Psalms, Sheva, seven, on the day I have praised you. Rashi explains why seven, because tefillin on your head is one, tefillin on your arm, well, that's two. Sits is on your garment, so there are four corners of the garment, so two plus four is six, and the mezuzah on your door, well, that is seven. And that's why King David says in Psalms, I praised you seven times for your mitzvahs, for your righteous mitzvahs. Continues the Talmud. But then... David had a very disturbing episode. He went to the bathhouse. Of course, a bathhouse does not have a mezuzah on the door. And you may not wear tefillin, not on your head, not on your arm, when you go to the bathhouse. And you don't wear tzitzis either. So David looked at himself and says, oh, I got a problem. I am naked. I am naked from mitzvahs. Those mitzvahs, those seven mitzvahs that I praise God about, none of them are here with me. But then he remembered something. He remembered the circumcision that is etched into his flesh. And he was calmed. He was assuaged. He was placated. He remembered that there's a mitzvah that's with him at all times irrespective of the circumstance and the time and the location. Always. The circumcision, the bond, the covenant that unites the Jew and God is with him at all times. And then he leaves the bathhouse and he says another verse in Psalms. Lam natseach ala shminis. The psalm for the eighth. Of course, the Brismila, the circumcision, is on the eighth day. And that is what David is praising God about this incredible gift, the circumcision given to him, given to us on the eighth. 
And my grandfather, the Blessed Memory, he explained this teaching in the Talmud as follows. The Jewish people are cherished. We're beloved by God. He surrounds us with mitzvos. On our head, on our arms, on our garments, on our doorposts. We are enveloped. We are completely surrounded in an environment of mitzvos. But there's a difference between who you are and the environment in which you live. If there is a time, if there is a place where those mitzvahs are not present, if you are in a location, in a circumstance, in a scenario, in a situation where those mitzvahs are no longer there, you're in a different environment. Is your connection with the Almighty severed? Is there a mitzvah that you take with you no matter what? And every time, and every place, and every location, always. Is there something which is bound to you, not just to your environment? That is the eighth. That is the circumcision. There are two types of mitzvahs. Of course, every mitzvah is a gift from the Almighty. But some mitzvahs are there to create the environment in which a Jew lives and will flourish. But there's a second class of mitzvahs. And that's not about the environment that's best suited for a Jew to flourish. It's connected deeply to who the Jew is. It's about revealing the essential holiness, that point of holiness, that point of Abraham that's within each one of us. When a child is circumcised, the blessing, there are two blessings that are said. The mohel, the circumciser, I think it's pronounced in English. The circumciser, the mohel. They say a blessing about the mitzvah of circumcision. The father has the privilege and the merit to say the second blessing. And that's about incorporating the child into the fraternity of Abraham. There was a bond that was developed between God and Abraham. Abraham changed the trajectory of history. From that point forward, there is a people, there is a nation that has an inseparable bond between them and God. And that is manifested by the circumcision, by this stamp of approval, so to speak, of God within us, where God's crown, so to speak, is manifested within the body of the Jew. And of course, this is just the beginning. This is just the, the, the symbol, if you will, of this mitzvah. But there are many mitzvahs that correspond to this idea that you have holiness within you. You have almost a manifestation of God within you, and you need to develop that. You need to find a way to fan that to life, find a way to actualize that, to awaken that, to arouse that within yourself, to become a complete exemplar a complete manifestation of the will of God in the world, to actually go in the ways of Abraham, to model your life, not just your circumcision, but your whole life in the ways of your great forbearer, in the ways of Abraham. And that is symbolized, not just the mitzvahs that you do in your environment, the ones that you do within you, it's symbolized by the circumcision. My grandfather, Blessed Memory, cited the Talmud, the book of Erevin. It's an incredible teaching in the Talmud. 
It says that there's a place called Gehenom, Purgatory. And from whatever I've read about it, it's not Disneyland. It's not a place that you want to go visit. And at the door of Gehenom, there is Abraham sitting. Just as Abraham sat at the door of his tent, he sits at the door of Gehenom. And anyone who is circumcised, anyone of his descendants that embodies the qualities of Abraham, because they are Jewish, they are part of not just the people who are living a certain kind of lifestyle, but people who have a certain identity. He does not allow them to enter. Only if someone is unrecognizable as a Jew, they don't have any of the identifying characteristics of a Jew, only then can a Jew slip into purgatory. That's what the Talmud tells us. Erevin 19a. There's a certain essential holiness that was developed by Abraham and of course, Abraham and Jacob and it became part of this nation. And a child at a very, very young age is incorporated, is entered into this special union with God. And that's what David is highlighting. There are mitzvahs that are environmental mitzvahs, but then there's some mitzvahs that are not contingent on time and, and location. They're with you at all times because they are part of who you are. They are your identity. And that, of course, is represented by the circumcision. And this is what God wanted from the Jewish people before they left. Before they left, they had to do some mitzvahs. And it's not random mitzvahs. It's the blood of the pastoral offering. You take the pastoral offering. And you slaughter it. And thereby you distance yourself from the Egyptians who deified these animals. And you take it and you plaster it on your doorpost. You're creating for yourself a hermetically sealed environment in which you will flourish as a Jew. But that's only one part of the operation. There's a second class of mitzvahs that are not about creating the environment in which you will flourish spiritually, but they're about identifying yourself, about choosing an identity of who you are, and that's the blood of the circumcision. The Jewish people at the Exodus made a change. They went from being servants of Pharaoh to being servants of God. And the way they did that is twofold. They said, who am I? They changed their identity. I used to be a servant of Pharaoh, and now I'm a servant of God. And what do I do? How do I live? What environment do I live in? I used to be one who is in service of Pharaoh, and now I'm in service of God. And I think for us, you know, if we're celebrating a circumcision, a brismila, it's not just a ritual that we do, it's not just a mitzvah, it's not just a tradition, it is a statement that we say. A very young child, before they know anything, completely ignorant about everything. We make a choice and we say, this child, you are a Jew. You're part of this team. You're part of this family. You're part of this glorious tradition that goes back all the way back to Abraham. And that's the blessing. You've been incorporated into the covenant that Abraham forged with God. It's an incredible thing. If you just think about it, what an opportunity that we have. How special is our lot? How fortunate are we? David, he noted that Jewish people are cherished. 
We're cherished because we, the Almighty surrounds us with mitzvahs. But even more than that, we're cherished because we essentially are elevated. We're essentially bound to the Almighty. And there's nothing, there's nothing that can undo that. The Talmud tells us, if a Jew sins, a sin, a flagrant violation of the will of God, that's what a sin is. A Jew sins, they're still Jewish. They're still part of the team. They're still a descendant of Abraham. They're, their identity hasn't changed. And again, the Talmud does, does outline how a person can become unrecognizable as a Jew. So it is possible. One of the examples the Talmud says is if someone undoes their circumcision, they pull the skin back to try to cover up the crown of God within them. But absent those outlier cases, there's basically nothing that you can do to change that. And that's something that we have to cherish. It's a great privilege that we have. Of course, it makes demands of us because if this is who we are, we should live a life that is compliant with that, that is in accordance with that. We should make sure that it's not just something that we have, but something that we embody and we live up to. And of course, I extended the blessing to the young David, young David, Wolby, my son. We're very happy with him so far, as we are with all of our children, but that he, in fact, lives a life that is representative of these values. He lives up to these incredible, lofty ideals of our great forebears, our great and holy antecedents, that he's someone who embraces his Jewish identity, not just as an identity, who you are, who you always are, no matter what, but also someone who takes that and, 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 and makes sure that the environment that they live in is also one that exudes holiness, exudes a connection with the Almighty. I did add that the name that we chose, my mother's grandfather, so my mother's father's father, his name was David. He sadly was killed in the Holocaust. And I said, I said, I literally don't know anything about him. But I did know my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. And he was like an angel of God. He was like an angel of God. Someone with the most resplendent, noble characteristics. Someone who's just a, a portrait of august nobility. And if this was his father, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it sight unseen. My mother told me by the bris that actually her great-grandfather, so this is her father's father, but her mother's mother's father was also David. And then from the other side, from the Florence side, it was also, there are a bunch of Davids that we thought about as well. And finally, and I said this by my son, Israel, Mayor's Briss, we have a, a family of cousins that the, the father and the mother and all 10 children were all killed by the Nazis. It's just a terrible thing. It's, it's un, unfathomable. The father, he was a great Torah scholar. He was a Rosh Hashiva in Poland. His name was Rabbi Wernerkowski. I guess he would say in English, Wernerkowski. So him and his wife and six sons and four daughters were all killed. No one remains. So one of their sons was Yisrael. So when my son Yisrael was born, I had a mind to also name after this 
I, again, I know nothing about this person, this old cousin of ours who was killed in the war. But I said, we're going we're gonna to channel that as well. And they have another son named David as well. So we thought about that as well now. And we hope that uh, our son becomes a Torah scholar and someone who has Yerushalayim fear of the Almighty. And please try to bring us uh, joy and may we merit to raise him properly and to uh, bring him down to the chuppah, to bring him down to the wedding canopy and see only happiness and joy from him and from the rest of our children. And I appreciate your time and attention. Of course, my email address is rabbiwalbygmail.com, and I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Have a sensational rest of your week. A fabulous, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week for the next installment of the Parsha Podcast for Parshas Bishalach. Thank you for listening. The email address is rabbiwalbygmail.com. Come.